it's a time where I do believe we can see ourselves or our neighbors or other Georgia voters who truly felt like their vote counted for the first time. Seeing that being ripped away, I think it's a very, this is a connecting moment for us all. Welcome to The Women. I'm your host, Rose Reed. Georgia State Representative Park Cannon was the youngest representative elected to the Georgia State Legislature in 2016. She was just 24. She's also the first openly queer state representative in the United States. She serves as the secretary of the Georgia House Democrats. She also continues to practice medicine. She's a doula and a healthcare worker in Atlanta. You also may remember Park from a previous episode on the women when we interviewed her during the Georgia State runoffs back in January. She talked about her experience growing up in rural Georgia, seeing firsthand the threats and the violence of the KKK in her community. And she also spoke about the issues most important to her, among them getting out the vote. But you also may know Park from a video that went viral just a few weeks ago a video that was posted the day that Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed the voter suppression bill, State Bill 202. And as he was signing behind closed doors, Park was serving her constituents of the 58th District, which includes the Old Fourth Ward where Martin Luther King Jr. was born. And she began to knock on the governor's office door. State Representative Park Cannon is out of jail today. Cannon was arrested yesterday afternoon outside of Governor Brian Kemp's office for refusing to stop knocking on his office doors. She has been charged with felony obstruction. It was an apparent protest of the Republican-led election reform bill, which lawmakers had just passed. The bill mainly focuses on restricting absentee voting, keeps volunteers from giving voters waiting in line food and water, and allows the state to take control of what it calls underperforming local election systems. Within hours, Governor Brian Kemp signed it into law. Critics say the measure will roll back voting rights and is rooted in former President Trump's claims that the election was stolen. Calls for change erupted following the November... Park was unlawfully arrested at the state capitol building by the very officers who are supposed to be protecting her while she is in session at the legislature. I'm going to play an excerpt of the raw footage. It's about a minute of tape. Be warned, it's upsetting. You can see Park in this video, flanked on either side by an officer. Aggressively drag her out of the building, her feet barely touching the ground, and at one point, The officers turn her around, so she's blindly walking backwards. Because she's wearing a face mask, you can't hear or see what she is saying. You can only see her eyes. Her colleagues and other observers demand to know the reason for her arrest, but they get none. Are you serious? No, you are not. She's not under arrest. For what? Under arrest for what? for trying to see something that our governor is doing? Our governor is signing a bill that affects all Georgians, and you're going to arrest an elected representative. Why are you arresting her? Tell us now, why are you arresting her? Cited. Give me a reason why you are arresting her. Give me a reason. Why are you arresting her? 
elected representative. You are choosing to arrest an elected official. Cite the statute. Cite the statute that you are arresting her under. When Park was released from jail, she had to seek medical attention, and since then, she could be seen wearing a sling on her left arm. There were two more days in session of the Georgia State Legislature, and Park went right back to resuming her duties, representing the 58th District. Representative Park Cannon, it's a pleasure to have you back on The Women. We met last year in what was most definitely the last hurrah before COVID, and we were in a room with some amazing people. We met through the podcast and through State Senator Nan Grogan Orock. I'm delighted to have you back on The Women. Thank you for having me. Today is a sunny day in Atlanta, and I think we're all pretty thrilled to be together. <laughs> Before we get into some heady stuff, I want to bookend this interview with some joy. And I just want to share that as I'm walking around springtime, I am listening to a lot of Donna Summer. I have disco fever. And I wanted to ask you, you know, to start off the interview, what is something that is bringing you a little bit of joy this springtime? That is a beautiful question. Only the women podcast <laughs> actually cares what is bringing me joy. We talk about it as Black joy. We talk about mm -hmm. it as Black joy summer. Mm -hmm. And it's really been this reclaiming of language around our expressions of joy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we laugh loud, you know, sometimes we'll hit a little, you know, slap on the wrist or whatever. So I've just really been enjoying hearing people laugh together in small settings. I have been a part of just like everyone else, vaccinating and social distancing and quarantining and testing for over a year now. And it's really nice to have a few limited engagements where people are simply laughing again. The symphony of laughter. That should definitely, that's a book title in the making. I know. And I just wrote a book this past year. That's right. It was really an interesting process. And I want to recommend that people at least journal or voice note their ideas mm -hmm. right now because our memoirs from COVID-19 and Jim Crow 2.0 are pretty mm -hmm. interesting. And um, so mm -hmm. I, I think I explore it a little bit in my book, The Universal Guide to Running for Office. I just try to affirm people in their runs for office through a series of affirmations at the end of my book. So I'll share you some of those affirmations as well. Oh, I would love that. Um, it seems that it's almost like a, a binary with the work that you do, which is very public facing. And writing seems to be like a private act. In the lawmaking process, I've actually realized the importance of multiple narratives. Even if we take, for example, our team, many of us on our team are millennials and 
are communicating our interests when we see bills come up. So I'll reach out to our international affairs team member who is defending his thesis today at Georgia State University. When I ask him, what do you think about this voter suppression measure? And he talks about growing up in Brazil and how the electoral system there has in some ways as well suppress the vote of those who live in favelas or who live in the communities without economic means. And in some ways, the idea of a democratic electoral process is not attainable. So where we are here in Georgia experiencing voter suppression measures be enacted into law, we actually are hoping to gain insight from other places where it has seemed, wow, there's no access to an absentee ballot drop box. Well, what is the harm reduction strategy that we can put in place right now to help people understand, even though Fulton County is going from having 38 drop boxes to having eight drop boxes Mm -hmm. after this bill is passed, we just need to inform people of the hours that those drop boxes will be open and help people access that. So we're already robustly, I think as a team, very sensitive to multiple narratives. I'd love to talk today a little bit about State Bill 202. This bill got so much attention. I was wondering for you, you know, having to work tirelessly leading up to the bill, if there was one provision that really um, struck you and made you think about your constituents. Certainly. And I'm so excited to hear Helen Butler's input. We, (laughs) We as women legislators this year, we did a state resolution honoring her and commending her voting rights work. And it was very much something that we've wanted to do for years and we have done for other dynamic women protecting the right to vote in Georgia. But it was so imperative this year because she serves on a local election board and there was a state bill to restructure that election board, therefore changing her ability to even be on the election board. So in real time, there are the voter suppressive measures in Senate Bill 202, but there are other local measures that were passed this session that are equally as damaging to our representation where these voting decisions will be carried out. As it relates to Senate Bill 202, I just want people to understand the impact of passing a bill that impacts every single county in Georgia without a fiscal note. During this legislative process, legislators were really clear. If we want to expand Medicaid, how much is it going to cost? If we want to change how people are able to access firearms, there will be a cost. When we change how people can access the right to vote, there are costs. This cycle alone, we had to fall under federal guidelines as it relies as it relates to voting because we were in a time similar to the September 11, 2001 incident. Just think about it. In 2001 in September, elections are in October, November. So there were 
brochures and federal guidelines set forward to say in the future, if states, counties, cities, or election officials are facing concerns during a time of attack or a time of economic downturn or emergency, where the state of Georgia remained in a state of emergency for over a year. Now to have those guidelines revoked in some ways and by these suppressive measures and doing it without a fiscal note is unfair to Georgia taxpayers. We stood in opposition to Senate Bill 202 as the Georgia House Democratic Caucus, not because we don't want our voting system to be perfect and not because we don't want our voting system to have integrity and checks and balances. But we voted in opposition to that measure because we can tangibly see the negative impacts that this bill will have on our communities. And the number one that I'm concerned about for people in Metro Atlanta counties is the state takeover, uh, the ability for local election officials in the Metro Atlanta area to be negatively impacted by state election board decisions that will curtail their autonomy and flexibility in conducting elections in the state's most populous county. If we can empower our communities, however, to understand the multiple sections of this 98-page bill that was not viewable by the public until after it had been passed on the House floor, then I do think we will be successful in what I consider trauma-informed voting practices. These practices that we know there is some concern, there is some harm, there is some uh, pain behind the actual experiences of voters, but that we will be able to succeed in the upcoming elections. You know, it's impossible to forget the image of what happened to you the day of the signing of State Bill 202 as a Georgia voter, as a person watching a video of a, a Georgia state policeman admonishing you for knocking on the door of, of Governor Brian Kemp's office while he's giving a, a press conference behind closed doors about this bill. It was, it was so hard to, to see that, to see how you were arrested, you know, to hear your colleagues yelling, to see that your eyes, because your mouth is covered with your, with your mask. So, you know, we couldn't see what you were saying. Um, your colleagues who are trying to video, but also trying to advocate for you at the same time, demanding, asking, cite why she's being arrested. I just want to say how sorry I am that that happened to you. Thank you for sharing that with me. It's, it's a time where I do believe 
we can see ourselves or our neighbors or other Georgia voters who truly felt like their vote counted for the first time. Seeing that being ripped away, I think it's a very, it, this is a connecting moment for us all. And so I thank you for sharing that with me as well as for all of the families and communities that have reached out to me. People from every state in the United States have written or messaged or called or supported because of the harm that is coming to their states as well. And it really reminds us of the importance of federal action on voting rights, because this is not about me. This is not about the experience of Georgia where there are very stark images like the one of the six Caucasian GOP members standing under a plantation and signing away people's rights to determine who represents them, what resources they have and what their futures look like. But this same image might not look the same in other states. So I'm glad that there's at least a few images that are being shared and carried, not just with people who are of voting age, but also children. I've been hearing that kids are learning about my unlawful arrest in middle schools already. And that is so humbling. The video of your unlawful arrest was also incredibly disturbing because of the moment where these two officers who have arrested you, who are grabbing you and flanking you, decide to turn you around so you are walking backwards in high heels with your purse on your arm. You look, you're, and as I said, like, we can't see your mouth, we can only see your eyes. It has almost a handmaid's tail quality to it. You know, I've noticed that your arm is in a sling on Instagram. And I was wondering if those were related. They are related. And I don't have a full medical report at this time. However, I am seeking treatment. And the images that have been shared of the arrest, I do believe, are why the district attorney was able to go ahead and get witnesses in and really look at this evidence and dismiss the case. The case has been dropped. Mm -hmm. I won't be facing the eight years. But still, it's so bittersweet because Georgia voters can face misdemeanors and felonies now because of this bill. So the criminalization... In fact, the over-criminalization of the entire voting process and advocating for the voting process is not new. This is just as it has been in the past. So I am definitely strengthened by those images being shared for public consumption because it is bringing disparate communities to the table. When you were arrested, were you read your Miranda rights? I wish I could answer that question, but I won't be able to answer it for you, Rose. 
Sorry. Yeah, I, I No, can't. I understand. I respect the privacy and legality. What's striking to me as someone who grew up in Georgia, I can recall with vivid clarity the maps on the walls in my high school that were of the Civil War, and it was titled The War of Northern Aggression. I can recall the pages in my eighth grade history book, which was a brand new book, which must have been, what, 1999, of uh, Georgia history, and everything about slavery or anything before the Civil War was on a sepia page color with italics and had this whole romanticism of, you know, before. And I'm thinking about all these things I learned in history about the poll tax, about the literacy tests, about, you know, why we had to make a 15th Amendment in the first place. And it's impossible to see this incredibly disturbing, unlawful arrest video where you are front and center and and not think of Jim Crow 2.0, although it feels like Jim Crow 200.0. As you're working in the state legislature and you're working side by side with your Republican colleagues who, rather than changing or innovating their platform or policies to attract, you know, new voters, they want to and have uh, embarked on a crusade to curb voter turnout and trying to prevent voting access. It seems so obvious and stark from the outside. Are you able to have candid conversations with your colleagues, you know, about their methods and their motivations? The factions in the GOP and Georgia's House and Senate right now, some of them are codifying conspiracies and perpetuating the big lie. Others are mm-hmm. just voting party line. And so mm-hmm. that's why you see the vote in the House on Senate Bill 202 is 100 to 75 straight party line votes. So these are absolutely polarizing times that we're serving in. However, there have been admissions of legislative intent all the way throughout this process, which is why as this law is challenged through multiple lawsuits in courts, it's all going to come out how these measures are not warranted. However, they are being enacted for a reason. I'm hopeful as we look at this idea of Jim Crow 2.0, that we remain in solidarity and in advocacy of the AAPI community, which just saw a massive attack on their ability to feel safe in Georgia and feel safe now voting in their communities in Georgia. I'm hopeful that we remain close and in solidarity with those in the Hispanic and Latinx community and communities that speak other languages. Because as we know here in Metro Atlanta, we have counties like Gwinnett and DeKalb that are mandated to provide ballots in additional languages because of their makeup. However, who pays for that? The counties have to pay for that. So as we move forward in explaining why this is not a tagline, 
this is history continuing to repeat itself, that it is going to be important that the narratives that are included are the Helen Butlers and the first time voters and the people who speak different languages. That's really the only way that this will be a national movement for voters' rights. When you think about moving forward, are you thinking in terms of from what you can do at a state level to what you can do to a federal level? How are you approaching that? This session, we spent so much time in Google Sheets with (laughs) all of these voter suppressive measures in the first column. And then if HR1 passed, would it negate any of those issues? And in another column, how much it'll cost the counties as they try Mm -hmm. to implement it. And one of the silver linings of having a legislative session like the one that we had was all eyes were on Georgia. People from other states felt an affinity towards our collective sense of a democracy that is operating as it should. We know those same 100 legislators who voted for the bill will be voting on the new lines. So luckily, more voters know their names. So when one half of Ponce de Leon is in one district and the other half is in another, well, both Midtown neighbors and Old Fourth Ward neighbors are able to say, no, we've all used to vote at the library together. And cutting up our districts in this way would be an issue for our neighborhood associations and the way that our Mm. precincts are cut and how we can support community members who are still facing COVID-19 head on or recently in the rearview mirror. So we're not weary. We are resilient and a model for the country. And that's all right. So what action movie would you liken redistricting to? I mean, I might just be like a sci-fi nerd, but I'm thinking of how like in Star Wars or in Lord of the Rings or even, you know, Game of Thrones, like preparing for battle um, in terms of, you know, using the new census numbers to redraw the lines, which was one of the key things that the Republicans did in 2010 to um, manipulate winning back local, regional, and state districts around the country. So it sounds like you're excited versus like dreading a battle in terms of redrawing the lines in the fall. Listen, I came up in the time of Clueless and Bring It On. Okay, so Bring It On. (laughs) So I would definitely have to say Bring It On for 100. Bring It On. Oh my gosh, I love channeling Gabrielle Union for uh, redistricting. (laughs) That seems very appropriate. I'm all on board on this. Yes, we can explore the narrative of bring it on in the redistricting process in Georgia. We can do a drive-in movie moment, and it'll be socially distant. Well, we can have it on on Ponce de Leon, like you said, and all eyes will be on Georgia. 
This is fun. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> And when we think about ways to move forward, what's it been like for you personally to return to a place where you were injured, where you were unlawfully arrested? You must walk past the officers who unlawfully arrested you. You must see them. I mean, how has it been for you returning just physically to this kind of place? We had two days of legislative session remaining after my unlawful arrest, and the first day, I was so blessed to be walked in by Martin Luther King III. He walked with me around the state wow. capitol. We visited his father's statue. We went inside and visited his father's photo. And I went on the floor. The other day, community members from across the state of Georgia poured out and just said, thank you. We got you. We're so sorry this happened to you. So I feel as though it is so important that the eyes remain on what happens in the Georgia State Capitol as we go forward in the redistricting process, which will initiate this fall. I have to say, as someone who is just taking this in as an observer, that it's very powerful to hear you turning what is truly traumatic and to fuel kindling for the fight and for, you know, a new way forward for so many people and for so many Georgians who have come out in record numbers to vote, to have their voices heard. I have to say, like, thank you. You're welcome. It's an honor and a blessing that we're able to talk today and Sometimes we have to rest, rest today so we can fight again tomorrow. And we're going to keep knocking. We recognize the power of nonviolence in historically protecting voting rights. So as Georgia is on everyone's mind, I want more than anything for us to outvote the voter suppression. I just want us to continue on the path forward and not backslide, even if law tries to make that. Well, I promised we would bookend this interview in joy. So as we always do on the women, ending with a lightning round of truth or truth, I would love if you would grace us with a quote that you would like to share from your book. <gasps> That's so exciting. Okay, okay, this is great. Yay. <laughs> okay, so it's um, when campaigning, every candidate should prioritize the endorsement of the public, meaning the people who pledge their vote over relying on endorsements from elected officials. I really like this one from Representative Renita Shannon, another powerful woman who stayed in the well when the reproductive health ban was happening in 2018. And mm -hmm. the reason that 
I believe it works so well in this moment is because we have all of these elections that are coming up and we'll be hearing all of these promises and propaganda. But at the end of the day, elected officials should want to be in search of the voice of the people. So however we can get closer to that, that would be great. The other thing I'm going to share with you, Rose, is in the beginning of my book, I have a playlist. That's exactly what we need. Okay, let me tell you about the playlist. So I say, Park's political playlist. These 24 songs keep me energized and remind me why I ran for office at age 24 to serve and see a better world. So I don't know what you want me to do about the songs, but they're all there. So you can, you know, you can basically go to look and see which ones. What's uh, the first song on that list? Ain't No Stopping Us Now by McFadden and Whitehead. It goes, (laughs) ain't no stopping us now. We're on the move. (laughs) Well, as someone who has danced with you in a parking lot on election day, I can't wait to do that again with our good friend Nan Orok and uh, celebrate all of these milestone moments in your career and for Georgia. It's really an honor and a privilege. Thank you for having me. You can learn more about Park Cannon and find us on Instagram at The Women Pod. The Women is a Rose Reed production. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Check back in a few weeks for more episodes of The Women.